welcome to episode 45 of the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. I thought this was the natural progression after the introduction to episode 44. If you are listening on the audio-only version, I'm currently filming this introduction cycling up the mountain overlooking Barcelona. It's also in honour of my guest on this episode, James Hewitt. And James and I share a passion for athletics, particularly cycling. And he's done some fantastic work on using his experience of cycling into working with knowledge workers and looking at well-being as a whole. And we need this type of measurement, I think, if we want to mature well-being within organisations, if we want to treat it as a more strategic concern. And on this ride, for example, I can measure my heart rate a little bit higher than it should be on this effort. I can measure my cadence, which is the revolutions of my legs that's going to keep me going up the incline on the mountain and also the metres above sea level. I'm currently about 420 metres above sea level. I can measure watts, the power, and I can measure many other things. There's things that I'll continue to measure. There's things that I don't need to measure anymore because of experience. And experience is the key. There's no numbers that will tell me how happy I am getting out of my bike in the fresh air, in this wonderful weather, and overlooking this fantastic city. And well-being is about experience as well. So we need to measure, we need technology, we need to track, but we can't forget that human touch. And what better experience on such a view as this, overlooking this wonderful city. So thanks for joining me again. This is a great conversation with James Hewitt. This is episode 45, Measurement, and it's the second in this spring-summer season. Enjoy, and I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Ciao. So hi, James. Welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. Where are you in the world today, and what are you working on? So I'm back at home in Cambridge. Um, it feels like there's been a big shift. I had two years, like a lot of people, working from home after a lot of time traveling. And then suddenly it feels like the world's opened up again. Everyone wants to meet in person. So I've been on the road for the last few weeks. Um, but at the moment, I'm working with several different clients, uh, really focused on workplace well-being. And quite a lot uh, of people I'm working with focused on trying to take some of these good ideas that we're all aware of and actually operationalize it, actually integrate it with the wellbeing strategy um, so that we can start to turn good ideas into, into practice. You, you touched on your journey the last couple of years and mostly working from home. What else has happened to you in this you know, shared experience that we all had during the pandemic? You know, how have you navigated that? How has your own wellbeing changed for good or, or ill during the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I mean it's been um, uh, uh, it's been intense in unusual ways. I think it's probably one way to describe it. So um, I, um, uh, I I used to work for um, a great company called Hints of Performance um, uh, as chief innovation officer there, and um, uh, and I made the decision actually to to move on from a full time role with that company um, uh, at the beginning, right at the beginning of two thousand twenty. Um, because I wanted to focus on a range of different projects with some different clients and also finish some of my academic research. Um, uh, uh, I've still got a great relationship with that company, 
but the plan was to you know focus on that that research um work on a few interesting what i'd call science as a service projects where i was doing some uh, some research with companies in a paid capacity um uh, outside of the core business of the, the company i was working with and had a great series of speaking events lined up for, for 2020 and uh, so I was like, fantastic, this is going to be a great year, a bit more time, a bit more freedom to kind of pursue some of these projects, finish off these papers. And then, of course, we all know what happened in kind of February, March 2020, pandemic hit, um, in-person speaking events got cancelled all over the world. And I was kind of left thinking, you know, what on earth do I do now? Um, and so in terms of my own well-being, that was quite stressful, uh, to say the least. But, um, but actually, um, uh, uh, things turned around quite quickly. Um, so I um, really reframed what I was doing, focused around a consultancy offer. So went back to some of these companies um, who uh, I was supposed to be doing speaking events for, uh, some of the companies that I was running these science as a service projects with, as I, as I describe it, and said, okay, we know, we're actually going to be approaching time of time now where um, people are going to be working in new ways. Uh, there's going to be new stresses. Why don't we do some projects where we try and measure what's going on and maybe even create some content uh, which is designed to help people um, drawing um, their, their shift to remote work, maybe where they're feeling a bit more disconnected. So actually, um, it resulted in some really interesting projects um, that I didn't uh, anticipate, but actually were very meaningful. Um, uh, and we ended up getting some really good outcomes, uh, trying to kind of uh, translate some of these, these workplace wellbeing approaches into this uh, new remote world of work. Um, but, um, but and, you know, on the personal wellbeing front, I I think a lot of what I ended up trying to productize or turn into a program um, was really things that I was trying to apply to myself. Um, you know, so for example, um, I think many people found that when we shifted to permanent remote working for a period of time, uh, you know, natural rhythms of the day um, suddenly uh, disappeared. And so for me, for example, you know, that transition where you get home at the end of the day after maybe uh, you know, you've been out and about with clients, uh, or maybe you've been in an office, or maybe you've been traveling and you either get back home to a hotel. You know, there's this change of environment that signals the end of the day. And suddenly that was gone. We didn't have that transition anymore. And, um, and I was hunting around. I felt like I needed something to mark that transition. And unfortunately for me, at the beginning of the pandemic, that became having a beer at the end of the day. And, and I just fell into this habit of drinking way more than I was yeah. before. Um, and um, and so um, and I realised I needed to do something to try and to, to try and kind of break this up to try and uh, um, kind of uh, uh, break this this bad habit which had emerged because it wasn't as much about the alcohol it was actually just having some kind of ritual. So um, well, the first change I made was to just switch to non-alcoholic beer. I actually found a pretty good one, um, uh, which which helped a lot. And also started to just introduce and um, getting a bit of time outside. Um, sometimes it was structured exercise. Sometimes I'd go for a bike ride. Um, uh, sometimes if I didn't have time, I'd just go for a walk. But just to create this, this ritual that marked the transition between kind of the intense working day, because I know that work rarely stops, unfortunately, at, you know, at 6 p.m. or whatever, and then this transition into the kind of more relaxed afternoon evening period. So that was just one way that I think in my well-being initially was probably compromised um you know there was obviously a lot of stress associated with that that uh, the disruption to what i thought was going to be my my year um and then also tried to get really tactical about you know with some practical ideas to to actually um introduce some new rhythms to make working life a bit more sustainable in that new yeah. way of work yeah no that's fascinating you know i 
some of those things that you mentioned, we looked at that also in terms of new rituals and routines. I'm absolutely testing a lot of the things that you know we both talked about over the years on ourselves. In many ways, it, it tested the robustness of the messages of performance and well-being. And of course, part of that robustness is looking at research and, and, and great that, and I know you have a very keen interest in, in the science of well-being and, and looking at different studies, but also does it work in our own lives? And, and, and that's the ultimate test in many ways. I've been so excited to talk to you because we share a love of athletics, particularly cycling, which I believe has been a big influence um, on both of our careers also. Can you talk a little bit about how you use the lens of, of competition and, and athletics in general as a concept into your career and well-being? What happened there? Yeah, um, so yeah, absolutely. I think you know, cycling is still a big part of my life in many ways, but in a different way than it was before. Um, my journey into well-being really started through cycling in many ways. So um, I used to be, um, uh, I was fortunate enough to be an amateur full-time cyclist. Basically, when I was 19, I moved to France to race for um, a, a, a French cycling team. Um, uh, because back in the day, that's what you did. There wasn't the kind of uh, Olympic development program. There weren't really the pathways that exist now. So I moved to the south of France, rode for this small team. Uh, that was back in 2002. Um, and um, did quite well. So got offered a, a contract with a better team and uh, got, got paid a bit of money. It was actually a development team for one of the pro teams. It was called um, a pro team called Brioche Blanchère. So we got, you know, the likes and all the kit and a bit of money. So I could race full time. I didn't need another job. Um, and I was uh, in the elite under 23 category. So it was called DM1 Espoir. So I got to race a mixture of professional races, UCI categorized races, uh, kind of a, a amateur races in France for under 23 riders and um and spent a few years doing that and um really enjoyed it but um realized quite quickly I wasn't the most talented athlete and um and so was a very early adopter of um various different technology particularly power meters which were quite a new thing back then not many people were adopting them particularly amateurs um and so um the reason I was so interested in measurement was because I wanted to know exactly where I was. I wanted to quantify that. I wanted to try and really model where I wanted to be. So the physiological demands, you know, the mechanical demands to be a top professional rider, how much power do you need to produce for how long, for example. And then I wanted to track to see whether that gap was narrowing. How was I actually going to get there? Was I on track? Well, you know, I had all kinds of spreadsheets and all kinds of models. And uh, But to be honest, I didn't really need those to, to recognize that I was never going to be a great top professional so um, I decided to call it a day. Um, I went back to university, studied sports science, um, uh, and like many failed athletes, became a coach. Um, and I worked with um, a mixture of different athletes. So I had the privilege to work with some uh, professional riders, some elite riders, but actually the majority of the clients I worked with were amateurs. Um, and generally, they were very successful business people in London, where I was based at the time, who had incredibly demanding careers. So they were professionals and management consultants, all the usual suspects who worked you know, ridiculous hours during the week and decided they wanted to be great cyclists at the weekend. And so as I started to work with these people, um, uh, I realized that um, some weeks they seemed to be responding really well to the training, absorbing the work, really enjoying it. And then almost unexpectedly, you know, their performance would just drop off. 
And, uh, and quite quickly, I realized that um, there was a whole group of variables I wasn't accounting for. And that was what was going on in their working life. And actually, it was the stress of their working life. It was the work demands, which were probably having the biggest impact on whether they were adapting and developing in response to the training that I was prescribing. So I became intrigued with working life, with what was going on in this world. And so um, I started to look for tools and measures to try and quantify what was going on in working life in the same way as I was quantifying what was going on in the bike. But I realized that you know, there was quite a lot of psychological measures, um, but um, there weren't really many behavioral measures. There weren't really many physiological measures that were applied in the workplace. And I felt there was a gap there. You know, there was an opportunity. So I started to apply and adapt some behavioral measurements. Uh, so looking at sleep, for example, some of those physiological measurements like heart rate variability, and, and tried to apply that to understand the load that my clients were experiencing in their working life to create this kind of integrated model where I could uh, account for load in working life, their physical training, uh, and create a better way to help them to, to reach their potential. And that worked quite well. You know, that was a, um, a, a really uh, a, quite an innovative approach at the time and, and got some good results. But um, I actually increasingly started to become more interested in what was going on in working life than I was in what was going on on the bike. Yeah. Uh, you know, it opened up a whole world for me. And, um, and at that time, I was approached by uh, a guy called Aki Hintzer, who invited me to, to join that company, Hintzer Performance, because he had a similar vision about trying to translate his learnings in Formula One, in that case, into, into the corporate world. Um, and so you know, that journey has continued to this day, really. Um, and I'd conceptualize knowledge work, because most of the people I work with, are, I'd say they think for a living. Um, I'd conceptualize knowledge work as a cognitive endurance activity in a similar way as you might think about cycling as a physical endurance activity. And, and the model that I used combining physiological, behavioral, psychological measures you know, actually formed the basis of my PhD research. It's actually a technique called digital phenotyping, mm -hmm. um, where you describe the observable characteristics of an organism. Um, and, uh, and I apply that to try and really understand what's going on in working life, what is driving well-being and performance, maybe what's holding it back to. Yeah, no, great work. Absolutely. Well done on that, on that journey. You know, I think that's, that's the sort of work that, that we need in well-being. You know, a lot of the, the objective behind this podcast and, and, and the whole platform of Chief Wellbeing Officer is to try and elevate well-being as a, as a more strategic mm -hmm. concern. And measurement mm -hmm. is absolutely something that we need, right? If you have this great degree of skepticism within the working world, you know, they're used to working with, with, with measuring some of these concepts. And well-being traditionally has been a very fuzzy, kind of soft concern at the margins of an mm -hmm. enterprise. But with this measurement and this approach in general, this mindset that you describe, that, that's what makes it more strategic and that's what gets there. There's, there's two things that come to mind now related to that, that journey that you've been on. One is the performance angle and looking at the performance lens of well-being. Another one is technology, right? So using technology mm -hmm. as an aid um, towards improving well-being. So if we can look at performance first, you know, peak performance, for example, is a huge industry um, and it is a primary lens through which we can look at well-being. But it isn't, of course, the only one. And of course, you've mentioned mm -hmm. Hints of Performance, which is a great company that works in this field. What, what do you think we're getting right if, if we wear our performance hat for well-being? And what are the things that you think that we need to take care with 
if anything. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, uh, some things that we're getting right are that we are um, increasingly recognising that sustainable performance is built on a foundation of health and well-being. And, um, and ideally, if you want to perform at the highest level um, for a consist- consistently for a sustained period into the future, you need to have those health and well-being components in place. So you need to be sleeping adequately. You need to be physically fit because the energy that your body makes is useful for everything, thinking, moving, staying alive. Um, also, you need to be thinking, obviously, about your nutrition, maybe making sure that you know your neck isn't ruined from sitting on a laptop in a bad position all day. Um, but also your mental health is uh, is robust, uh, that you know, you're on the, uh, in the right place on that continuum between mental health and mental ill health. And from that, you can build uh, a foundation for performance. And, uh, and by performance, I'd, I'd say you know, we need to think clearly about what we mean by performance in the workplace. And you know, there's a lot of different dimensions which we can uh, we could describe performance through. Um, you know, for example, an ability to make decisions quickly, good decisions, to um, to focus, and then to sustain that focus. But also, there's components around um, uh, um, our ability to process social emotions as well. Um, you know, to actually understand what's going on in us, but also what's going on in people. Um, to to be able to to um, also kind of lead teams effectively, uh, to be able to actually think about the bigger picture as well as you know, the immediate concerns, what's right in front of you. you know, they're just a few, um, but one of the things I often encourage clients with companies that I work with to do uh, you know, when they say, oh, we want to achieve sustainable high performance, uh, to actually sit down and think about what does performance mean in your context? And I actually think we're getting better at defining that. You know, there's some, some good tools available uh, to help us to actually be clear about uh, what dimensions of performance are relevant in your workplace and how can we we measure them. And as I said, I think that we're starting to appreciate that well-being is a foundation for that. I think one of the things that maybe we're getting we're getting wrong, um, or maybe we struggle with, is um, there's a risk. There's always a risk that we can believe that you can achieve peak performance without any cost, and that actually peak performance is something that never changes. Um, and I think that, that this goes wrong in, in two ways, I think. There's two possible expressions of this, uh, in my view, where, where we get it quite wrong. One is where um, we believe that somehow it's possible to achieve kind of peak performance without to make sacrifices. And uh, unfortunately, I just I don't think that's possible. Uh, you know, there's always going to be some compromise. You know, I think, for example, you know, over the last few weeks, you know, I've had, um, uh, it's been great. I've been working with some really interesting clients in some really interesting places, but that's involved quite a lot of travel. Um, at times, I've had to compromise my sleep. I've not spent as much time with my wife and my kids as I'd like to, um, but I made the decision to do that because limited time, and I really felt that uh, what I was doing was purposeful. Um, it was going to have a positive impact. It was, it was really worthwhile in a number of different ways. Um, I think sometimes you know, we, we create this, this kind of image of, of what sustainable performance looks like. And, uh, and it's this kind of uh, state of um, persistent and consistent, perfect equilibrium where, you know, we're sleeping eight hours every night and our nutrition is perfect and we're never stressed. And life isn't, just isn't like that. Yeah. So I think we need to recognize that, you know, well, being is the foundation for performance, but it's a moving target. And sometimes it's okay to compromise. Um, and because if we're not careful, we can either end up kind of just pretending that everything's fine when it's not and not saying, actually, you know what? Yeah, my well-being is a bit compromised at the moment. The decision to do that because it's something I'm working towards. Um, and um, we end up 
we end up deceiving ourselves, you know, maybe pretending things are fine uh, when they're not, yeah. or, and maybe creating this illusion that you know, perfection is possible and, uh, and actually creating an, an unrealistic target, which ends up really undermining the message um, that actually well-being should be something that, that is integrated into our life, you know, that, uh, that actually results in a better life. Uh, not just an unrealistic target that you know, we can never quite reach. Yeah. I don't know if that answers yeah. your question, but... You know, no, there's, maybe, some, there's some absolutely great points there. That. Yeah, some great points there, James. Thank you. Um, you know, broadening that understanding of performance, uh, enriching that within whatever context, you know, a client organisation needs, and also to get away, and, and sustainability, absolutely key, and get away from that kind of hustle culture angle and, and, and very much male-oriented view of performance that, that sometimes takes hold. Um, and, and even work like the corporate athlete was so important in, in, in developing that and mainstreaming the view of performance, but it often went in that in that dimension. So I think those comments are great. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, that last one, you know, I've often talked recently about you know well-being is a journey we don't get the answers and then that's it finished it's always in play you know because life is messy and the context always changes um and we have to think about that bigger picture so so some really great comments there some great insights thank you looking at technology i know that you've you've been on a bit of a journey there in the last couple of years also looking closer at technology and it's an interesting one right because obviously a lot of the the causes of mental health or issues around mental health and, and poor well-being can be attributed to technology as well. And, and we all know the value of, for example, a digital detox. So where is the balance that we need uh, in terms of a, a digital or a technological aid to improve our well-being? Do you see evidence of any products or any approaches out there in the marketplace right now that really get it right? Mm. So I think um, the wearable technology, and if we want to zoom in on that in particular, um, uh, is uh, they're powerful tools, but it can be a double-edged sword, um, like many of these powerful tools. I just want to mix my metaphor there. Um, you know, I think it can work really well. I think that the strength of wearable technology is that it can provide, at best, um, a feedback loop to increase people's awareness of what's actually going on. Um, and, and also to provide a feedback loop to actually measure the effect of, um, of changes that you might introduce. So um, assuming that the measurement is accurate enough, they're never 100% accurate if it's accurate enough. If, for example, um, you introduced some new behaviours to try and improve your sleep, you might be able to measure that on average your sleep duration was improving. And that can provide a positive feedback loop so you can see that that thing is working for you. So, you know, I've worked with, um, uh, I worked with an interesting company. We introduced a whole set of different, um, uh, different interventions to try to help people to improve their sleep. And some people used a wearable tracker to do that. And, um, and actually we saw on average that there were measurable improvements in sleep duration, um, uh, which was statistically significant associated with simple sleep hygiene um, tips like uh, avoiding caffeine after midday, making sure the room was dark, thinking about room temperature uh, and things like that. And so in that case, it was great because, you know, at an individual level, people saw that this really works. They actually had a number. And for certain personalities, having that number, which wearable technology provides, um, is really helpful. Also, at an organizational level, we were able to anonymize and aggregate that data and actually show that um, there was an effect from introducing these ideas. 
And one of the really positive things was that it was a really strong incentive then um, you know, for the leadership in that company uh, to actually create structures and systems that meant that their teams could prioritize sleep. Um, so this was a global company. And so they made some shifts in terms of um, uh, changing some meeting times, for example, and actually shifting some asynchronous communication in certain contexts. Uh, to, so people weren't having to take calls very, very late in the evening, which was disrupting some people, for example. So in that case, it can be very, very effective. Um, I think that where it can go wrong is if we assume, if we believe that uh, these wearable devices are a source of 100% truth, that they're 100% accurate. And also, we need to be mindful that you know, different personalities um, might respond to the data from wearable technology in different ways. You know, there was an interesting study done um, uh, a few years ago. Well, it was actually a published paper um, with a series of case studies um, uh, which um, described cases of orthosomnia, where basically um, these people had become obsessed with their sleep data. Um, actually, um, the sleep data wasn't accurate, but they believed it was, and they ended up developing sleep disorders because um, they believed their sleep was, was much worse than it actually uh, was in reality when they did some, some clinically validated tests. Um, and uh, and so in the end, you know, these people ended up having to stop using the devices. Some people in the one uh, one person in the case study actually refused to stop using the device. They were so so obsessed with the data, so convinced it was true. So we need to be careful about you know, who's using it, how we introduce it, and um, how we use the data. Hopefully, to reinforce positive behaviours. Um, and um, and so as I said, I think you know there's, there's a tension there. There's a number of things that I've seen work very well when wearable technology is introduced. Um, and, and I think that's where there's where there's buy-in, where um, you know there's a um, everybody who's on board, the people using the device, the leadership, um, are really clear about what they're trying to achieve. Um, you know that this is about primarily supporting the individual. Um, it's not about um, uh, surveillance, for example, which is another uh, which is another issue. So where there's kind of a collective buy-in, it works really well. It also works much better when it's combined with coaching. Um, you know, I've seen that myself, um, where you know you combine that data with a human coach. But again, there's some there's some there's some existing published research which indicates that comparable uh, with some coaching uh, is actually more effective. Um, there's a really high quality study done um, a couple of years ago. Um, it was over 12 months. It was randomised. It was placebo controlled. That is incredibly unusual for um, wearable. Uh, uh, studies into wearable devices. Mm. Um, and what they found was um, that when you introduce the coaching intervention alongside that wearable device, in this case, it was just 12, 30 minute presentations, uh, which were delivered by a smartphone and then daily guided text message based feedback, which was personalized to each participant. Um, it significantly resulted in significant improvements in sleep and physical activity, but even in uh, things like percentage body fat, their VO2 max, which is a measure of how much oxygen your body can take up and use, and also improvements in heart rate variability, which is really an indicator of the balance between your rest and digest system and your fight or flight sympathetic system. Mm. Um, and, and it was that the improvements were greater by combining wearable plus coaching than just having a wearable on their own. So I am a big fan of technology, but it's got to be introduced in the right place at the right time with the right expectations. Uh, do you think there's a strong case for combining it with some some human coaching as well? Um, in terms of specific technologies, I'm not linked with a particular device manufacturer um, uh, uh, commercially. Um, I've got a few favourites for different purposes. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of Aura. I've got an Aura ring. 
they've got some data in terms of uh, the sleep data that that is um, uh, uh, that they generate. It's been validated against gold standard measures like polysonography. Um, I also quite a big fan of Thirstbeat. Um, I mm. use them quite extensively in my PhD research. If you want a deeper dive, it's a single lead ECG. Um, and uh, actually did a little experiment on myself when I was traveling through the US. Um, incidentally, um, some of my highest stress moments were the post-event drinks, uh, yeah. which is probably not a surprise. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I've also done some work with Whoop as well. Um, yeah. uh, and um, you know, I think with Whoop devices, the um, uh, you know, the, um, obviously it's a it's a different form factor. One of the great features of that is they do a, a monthly report um, at the end of each month, which correlates various recovery metrics with behaviours you might have introduced and tagged in a journal feature. So it's a, quite a nice way to kind of do some personal experiments. It's been great talking to you, James. Wrapping up our conversation, we hope that we're coming out of this um, pandemic and, and a less restricted life. But the, the, the desire, I think, also is that we don't just copy and paste the way that we did things before. What do you think is one thing we need more than most? If we're going to redesign the, the way that we work, if it's about mm. performance, if it's about well-being, but if it was one message that you want to share with people, what do you think it would be? So I think it's that we need to really open up multiple channels of communication at all levels of organisations of the urban organization so we get a much clearer idea about people's experience and what's working and what's not because at the moment i think there's a risk that we can leap ahead into assuming that we know what's working what's not and uh, and, and either create a new way of working or maybe just revert to the old one without really taking a moment to, to to take a step back and really understand what's working well what's working not actually try and understand and gather that information from different levels of an organization so we can create a plan going forward and then test it and and that's maybe what i see there's a risk at the moment that um there's lots of good ideas there's lots of enthusiasm to push ahead and create new approaches um without maybe taking the opportunity to capture some of that experience um, that we've all had over the last couple of years and really um use that to create a platform for for a much potentially a much better way of working in the years to come love that that's your scientist brain there in in full work working mode, you know, challenge the assumptions, don't jump to the solution. And, and, and you're right. I think there's a lot of assumptions, and a lot of solutions out there that people are moving too fast towards. I think that's a great answer. Final um, question and putting on my Desert Island Discs hat here to finish off the podcast episode, a special song for you, James, over your life and or career. What would that be and, and why is it special? It's funny because I'm not really a big fan of kind of like, you know, rock or country, but it's it's Hard Candy by the Counting Crows. And the reason for this is that when I first moved to France in 2002, I lived in a terrible rubbish little apartment provided by the team. And um, I had a mini disc player without any external speakers. And that's really dated me now, mini disc player. Um, and so the only way to listen to music in the apartment was this very old um, kind of CD player, which we had in the kitchen. But I didn't have any CDs, but whoever had lived in there before and left um, uh, and uh, had obviously bought the new Counting Crows album, um, Hard Candy. And so <laughs> I used to wake up every morning while I coffee and having my breakfast and play the first couple of tracks from that CD 
because that's all I had. It broke up the silence because I was yeah. living on my own awesome. uh, in 2002. So whenever I hear Hard Candy, that first track on the Counting Crows uh, album by the same name, it uh, uh, takes me straight back to the south of France in 2002 without a care in the world except for, you know, drinking my coffee, right eating my bike. breakfast and riding my bike. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Great to talk to you today, James. Looking forward to many more conversations in the future. All the best. Likewise. Thank you, Stephen. I'm